Greetings. Welcome to another Truth Factor discussion. Today is Wednesday, uh, March 25th. And this is going to be episode number 293. 293, and we are currently in our study through the book of Romans. We'd like to thank you so much for joining us for our study today. For some reason, my image is brighter than normal. Hopefully, it'll take care of that and, and look better here in just a couple of minutes. Good to have everyone with us here today for the study, except for Paul and Shelton. I don't see Shelton with us today. Um, he's doing well up in Stillwater. He and his wife, and they're managing this shelter in place that the governor has, has issued. And the congregation up there is doing their best, as all congregations are, to continue forward. Uh, these are most definitely interesting times, and a lot of questions have been raised, things that are you know, wonder about how we deal with certain things, but we're not really talk about those here in today's study. Let me share with you here for a moment how you can participate in today's study. It's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. And let me remove one thing. There it is, sorry. So if you'd like to join us in our study today, you can follow us at YouTube. Go to youtube.com slash truthfactorlive slash live. If you're already there, use the comment area if you would to participate in today's study. You can also view this on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash truthfactorlive. Um, and if you're watching us there, comment there as well. We'd love to hear from you. We do stream to uh, live.truthfactor.com, but there's no way of commenting there. You can email us, send them to questions at truthfactorlive.com, or even uh, if you want to hashtag us, or not hashtag us, but um, um, name us on Twitter, you can send a comment to at truthfactorlive on Twitter as well, and we'll be monitoring all of those. All right, so with that being said, we are looking at Romans chapter 9 today. And let's go ahead and have our first reading done by Tom, if you would. Let's start there in Romans chapter 9, and I think we had decided earlier to do the first 13 verses there of that, Tom. All right, okay, and again, uh, I'm reading from the New King James Version. Uh, Paul says, I, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit and I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also has conceived by one man, 
even by our father Isaac. For the children, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said of her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate you reading that for us. Now, Mr. Bryan, let me see. Do we have a question <clears throat> for the chat room? We do. All right, let me grab that real quick here. Our chat room question goes to that last verse we just read where uh, the Old Testament passage that Jacob I have I loved and Esau have I hated. So what do you think about the statement that God hated Esau? Why do you think that statement is there? What do you think that statement means? Uh, give us some thoughts back on that, because that's a kind of an unusual passage to consider for a few moments. And what do you think uh, that means? Why would God have said that? So uh, uh, there's something for you to think about, a couple of different ways you can answer that. So we look forward to hearing what you have to say about it. Appreciate that. That's a good, good question. Appreciate that, Brian. All right, so when we are looking at our text here today, let's see, Tom, you were doing the reading for us initially there, so let me kind of uh, throw this in your direction there. Um, Paul, Paul seems to be singling out a particular group of people in verses in chapters nine, ten, and eleven who. Um, I know he addresses the Gentiles, but who else is he addressing, Tom? And, and this is really maybe where his the plea is going to. Okay, all right. Uh, he, he's addressing his he's addressing his Jewish brethren, and 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 in particular, I think he's he's dealing with brethren whom he loves, whom uh, you know he hasn't he has an affection for as he was raised. But they have rejected Christ as the Messiah, and they have rejected the gospel. So he's he's dealing with that, and he's addressing Israel and what Israel could be. Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of the thing that we're looking at here. Um, and and the Israel that he's talking about or talking to, he's talking about the modern day Jews that had not yet accepted Christ, those who were still holding to that mosaical law. And so we have him really, really pleading with them that they would listen to that. And I think that's important to keep in mind as we view these three these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11. Um, and, Paul, and, and Tom, since you're there, notice there what Paul makes in his statement there. In verse 2, uh, very specifically, he says, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart you know, when, when I stop and think about the people that I grew up with that have not yet obeyed the gospel, as far as I know, I don't know if I really can say like Paul did, I grieve in my heart continually for them, but maybe I should. Um, well, what, what, what does that say about Paul's feelings for these brethren? Well, we know that Paul, Everything he did was about the gospel. I mean, that's why he's such a great example to give consideration to is, you know, I mean, uh, the sacrifices he was willing to make. And, and all he wants is what's best from a spiritual standpoint. He wants people to follow Christ, and anybody who won't follow Christ, that just grieves him. And, I, and it, is a, it is a great lesson for us. I mean, I, I mean, are we concerned about 
those in society that that are lost? Do we see them as lost? And to what degree are we willing to do whatever? Are we are we willing to become all things to all men that we might win some? Yeah, that's a good point. And something for us to really think, think very heartily, or think very seriously about our you know, about our own lives and our own attitude towards them as well. Brian, I've got a question for you. I'm looking for one more floating. I've lost a box here that's pretty important. There we go. So, Brian, there is a very perplexing statement here the Apostle Paul makes, and I want to see what your thoughts are on this. Um, I, I, and I'll kind of preface it by saying this. I knew a, a Christian years ago, and um, he had three daughters, and he would, he would often say, I would lose my soul if it meant that my girls could be saved. I would be willing to sacrifice my soul in order for my girls to be saved. And I never quite knew exactly what he meant by that. He wasn't the most faithful Christian, if you would. Um, and I don't know where he's at today or what has happened with his girls. But Paul says something kind of similar. I'm not, it's, it's a little bit different, but notice he says, for I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren. Um, you have any thoughts on that? What, what do you think Paul intends by that statement? It's a pretty profound statement. Uh, kind of brings back to our mind back in Exodus chapter 32, where Moses uh, made a similar statement for the same people, the children of Israel, when he discussed with God having his name blotted from the book of life. So it's a pretty, uh, we might kind of see that as a parallel statement to this one, that uh, Paul is saying a couple of things here. First and foremost, his love for his people, the people of Israel is so great that uh, that if there was a, the ability to be swapped out, he would do so. Now, God had told Moses that can't happen, and, you know, of course, the same is true for Paul. But a second consideration might be that Paul is almost uh, saying, in a sense, that my great love for these people, I wish I was wrong, that I wish I did, uh, you know, in that sense of, you know, it, it would be easier for me to take it that way. And, and if that is Paul's meaning, then, in, in a second sense, then it just, again, goes back to emphasize he has a tremendous love for the people of Israel. He doesn't want them to be lost. He's not preaching these things because he resents them or he despises them. And, and somebody might accuse him of that. Somebody might say, well, Paul, you're just uh, anti-Jewish. In fact, to this day, today, some modern secular scholars sometimes accuse Paul of being uh, an anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic writer because of the things he said. And Paul is saying this, nothing can be further from the truth that his love was so great that that his soul, uh, he didn't love more than he loved them. So that's a profound statement. I I, um, I don't know what to make of it as far as the, the emotional depth that it, that it puts, because you, you said it, John, who do I love that much? And the answer is, you know, that, that, that's a, that's kind of a tough love to, to put in effect. Right. You know, and, and, and I can't help think of Jesus. I can't help think of the depth of the sacrifices that Jesus made for us and what he was willing to do. And, and that's what we, and that's, uh, that's the degree to which Paul cares about the souls of other people. Yeah. I think that's a good point. Any other thoughts on that particular statement by Paul? Yes. All right. Let's go ahead and consider here for just a moment. There was something else. Um, so the Apostle Paul is kind of doing a little bit of brief history and reminding the brethren there. 
he talks about them. They were Israelites and to who pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promise. You know, I think about when the apostle Paul is writing in chapter three, after having said what he said about the sin of the Jews, he kind of asked the question in chapter three, verse one, then they're really what, what profit, you know, what did it profit them? You know, um, and so much in every way because that God had entrusted in them the oracles, but not just the oracles, but the promise and, and Mike, when he says there, the service of God and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom according to the flesh Christ came, what promises is he referring to? It would go clear back to Abraham where the promise to Abraham was that through his seed, all nations of the earth would be blessed. Uh, then went to Isaac and then of course to Jacob. The fact is that the Jews felt they were privileged people and were given a law, but they didn't look at the law as being full of the uh, full of an adoption that Paul uses here at verse four that would bring them to Christ. They didn't look at it as prophecy. They didn't look at it as glory. They didn't look at it as, as a covenant that would stretch onward into the new law. Um, the covenant being the promise that God would bring into a new law. It's it, just like Moses said, that God would raise up from their their people among their kindred a prophet like unto me. To him shall you hear. They wouldn't listen to Christ. And yet all these glorious things that God had done for Israel, saving them from Egypt, bringing them across the Red Sea, uh, caring for them for 40 years in the wilderness, and then bringing the second generation of Israel across Jordan into Canaan, all those blessings pertain to these people with God's promises. And then at verse 5, he says, the, the fathers of whom con, uh, of, as concerning the, fle uh, the flesh, Christ came. They just simply wouldn't look far enough into what God had done to see that the Messiah would come from their own people. And that grieved Paul. They were a blessed people and yet they didn't care much for the blessings they'd receive. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, they had every advantage. Uh, you know, I, I, I love this list. You know, sometimes people wonder about why, what, what advantage did the Jews have? You know, I, I think it was Romans three in verse two or something like that. He talked about much in every way, you know, uh, uh, as far as that, because of, uh, uh well, it was convinced to them the oracles of God. Yeah. They, they had an inside track, and just uh, we could spend an entire lesson talking about all the things that are described here, and it would be great to consider it, everything they had. And yet many of them were the ones that were more hostile to considering Jesus. Well, John 1 and verse 4, I believe it is, uh, says that he came into his own, and his own received him not. And so here we see that, that reality where these Jews— to which all this pertained, didn't care enough to see that they were part of God's glorious promise to all of mankind. They they were a very integral part to it, but they, they turned away from it. And I like the phrase here at verse 5, uh, who, is, uh, who is over all, God blessed forever. They still wanted God. But they wanted God on their terms, not his. And there lies a problem today. 
So many people want God on their terms and not his. And they're not good. I, I saw a commercial on television several times in the last few days that every time it comes on, I change channels. It bothers me so badly that there's this fellow that's very well known nationwide keeps claiming that all you have to do is say a prayer and be saved. Well, that's taking God's word and changing God to what you want instead of what God says. God says that you have to hear, believe, repent, confess, be immersed for the remission of your sins, not just pray some prayer. And these Jews were doing essentially the same thing. God said, do this. And they said, yeah, we'll do what we want with it and let Christ go by the side. And that is what grieved Paul. Let me say also, John, that Paul himself lived this way for a while. Yet on the road to Damascus, you'll know that he was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Once this truth finally got through Paul's thick head, he went everywhere preaching the truth. Okay. All right, I appreciate that. Brian, you kind of made some noise and took over, so I think you've got a comment to make, do you? Yeah, that's tough. I uh, got caught pouring coffee. I thought I muted myself, and, uh, you know, that's uh, that's a bit of a problem there. So uh, I don't have much more to add. I do think this term promises is interesting, and you guys have kind of covered it. Um, but all the different promises that, you know, we mentioned the seed promise, but they also had a land promise. They had a special people promise. They had a particular glory. Paul lists a, a number of things that made them unique. Um, and and none, all these were less than the, the oracles of God that, that Tom mentioned earlier. So the very first thing, one of the big ideas in Romans 9 is, is there's an accusation. Is God unfair because Israel wasn't his ultimate goal. Israel was just a step to get to that goal. And what he's trying to make the case is not only was God not unfair to Israel, but God was exceedingly patient and gentle with Israel too. But ultimately, Israel wasn't meant to be his choice. And that's that's what Romans 9 in a, in a big image is trying to tell us, that, that God, while he blessed Israel, while he was good to Israel, in the end, they weren't his choice. And this is all going to be reflected in two brothers. And uh, I don't want to get to that yet. I'm sure that's where you're heading. So, Okay. All right. I appreciate that. All right. So let's see. Let's go ahead and look at the next section. Paul, welcome to our show. How's your Thank morning you. going, sir? I'm sorry? I said, how's your morning going? Oh, busy, busy, but uh, I'm glad to be here. All righty. Well, I, I had a haircut before the show today, so our study, whatever that means to you. <laughs> they gave me a hard time because if I if I sported a different hairstyle, I wouldn't have to worry about cutting my hair. Uh, yeah, I think I like that other hairstyle. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's go ahead and look at the next section. As as and Brian has already kind of um, introduced us a little bit to it, and I think it's a good. Good that he did. Um, it's interesting that he poses the question here in verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, or more the statement. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. All right, so think about the promise that was made, the promise that was made to Abraham. And then you look at all the Jews that have not yet obeyed the gospel of Christ. But yet you look around and you see that Paul is teaching that there were those of Israel. Um, 
he goes through here and kind of explains a little bit the promise that's going down. And as Brian pointed out, there will be two sons kind of introduced within this. But notice what he says again. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. All right, now there we're talking about, I would think, probably the physical seed of Abraham. Brian, do you think he's talking about Gentiles here? Uh, as far as uh, the seed of Abraham that uh, would be called, you know, and elsewhere he'll tell us that the seed that are not of of the flesh are, in fact, the Jew and the Gentile. In the book of Galatians, for example, when he refers to the idea that we are, by faith, sons of Abraham, that that is, seems to be the reference that he's making. Here. Yeah. So in this case in point, what we're looking at here is he's building, he's kind of asking the question, you look around and, and there are those who God has accepted, but they're not of the seed of Abraham as far as from the physical descendantry, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God. Okay. And, and see, I go back to even Jesus's discussion um, when, when they were, he was talking to the Jews and he says, you are of your devil. You are of your, you are of your father, the devil. And they said, we only have one father and that father is Abraham. And he said, if you were of Abraham, then you would have received me. Um, so here, verse eight there. So I, I guess I'm building up to a point where I don't know what it is. That is the, <laughs> that is those who are the children of flesh. These are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. So what are your thoughts on what he's saying there in verse 8? Um, you know, I actually think he's going somewhere with this. The idea of the child of the flesh versus the child of promise, that there's a difference in those two things. And, and that works nicely with both Abraham and with, uh, with Isaac. So Abraham's son of the flesh was Ishmael. That was the firstborn son the son who by the nature of the flesh would have inherited everything. But the actual son of promise wasn't that son. It was another son. It was Isaac. Now, Isaac has two sons, and the oldest of those sons, Esau, is the heir, is the one meant to be the, you know, the receiver of those things. But he's not actually the child of promise either. God actually intends for the second son there as well to be the son of promise. So I think it's kind of interesting that he's trying to say that they're, there have been circumstances that we know, and, and uh, speaking like a Jew, if I were Jewish, circumstances that we as the Jewish people would know are familiar with this story where God didn't choose the natural heir. He chose instead the spiritual heir. And that is kind of where we're uh, trying to build a case here uh, for some real important ideas coming in. Okay. All right. I appreciate that. So then what, and I think that's, that's a good way of looking at this. That would also affect the way that we viewed the kind of the parenthetical statement there in verse 11. But the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. Again, do you think this points to the Gentiles? Uh, yeah, or, um, you know, let me say it like this. I actually think more it's the idea it points to the Christian, that uh, which can be either Jew or Gentile. I mean, you're right to say, the Gentiles, but the Gentiles aren't exclusive to that adoption. The Jew and the Gentiles is that adoption. So this new man, Ephesians 2 says he takes the two that are enemies, takes away the dividing part and makes one man out of them. 
it's that new man truly that he's talking about here. So the idea of, of the true new spiritual man, that's that's the person that's the true heir. Well, the Ed, that, well, go ahead, John. I say the reason I mentioned that is because later within these three chapter, he he really nails, he really brings it home to the Jews like an olive branch being cut off, and the Gentiles being grafted in as a wild olive branch, and basically said that um, because of you, God hopes to provoke the Jews to jealousy that they might come back to Him. And that's a broad paraphrase of that, of course. Um, well, and, and with that is what, what I was going to bring out. When Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia, he, he told them about this allegory between Sarah and uh, uh, Hagar. Hagar. And uh, how the, uh, but, but the point is, it's in Isaac that thy seed shall be blessed. And Paul said to the churches of Galatia, as in uh, uh, that we're blessed in seed, not as of many, but as of one. So that if the promise was given through Isaac, then there wasn't any promise given through Ishmael. And right on down the line, when we come to Esau and Jacob, the promise went through Jacob, didn't go through Esau. So to follow God's plan is the idea here. At, at verse eight, that the promise uh, that the children of the promise are counted for the seed, it's those that follow this promise. And I think Brian Brian showed that there there's a split here, and many of the Jews thought that because they were children of Abraham, that's fine. But notice that many of the children of Abraham of the flesh never followed God, but became God's enemies. Same thing with with uh, with uh, Esau. Many of them became God's enemies. The idea is to follow the promise that God gave, starting with Abraham, said to Sarah that the older or that the younger, the older would serve the younger. And so you've got to follow the promise. It's it, it, God doesn't do things the way man wants him to do them. He does them his way. And therefore, to follow this line through God's promise is what brings us the promise of eternal life when we obey this gospel. Okay. All right. Appreciate that, Mike. Any other thoughts or comments on this section before we look at the chat room? Any thoughts? All right, Brian, did we have any responses? Let's first bring your question back up again. The question we did. Uh, we had one in our Facebook chat is where we had our answer this morning. Uh, looks like Gregor had tried in YouTube, and then it, uh, he took his answer back. So we do have from one from Dan Gatlin, uh, a uh, special guest uh, on this show uh, last year. Dan says, Jacob and Esau represent the nations that would come from them. Uh, Paul is arguing for God's right to make choices. God blessed Jacob and his descendants. Esau was hated in the sense that he wasn't God's choice. What's kind of neat about what Dan said there is that it, it, it plays to the idea where Jesus would elsewhere say, you must hate your father and mother. Uh, that's kind of a complicated passage, except to understand that that the implication is it's that they must be second to God. And so the idea is that Esau was not God's choice is what he points to. Did you, oh, Tom, oh, go ahead. Uh, 
Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Tom, did you find Gregor's comment? For some reason, it didn't show up on mine. I have. Yeah, on, yes, on YouTube. Uh, yeah, I just copied and pasted it in, okay. in our chat. Well, although Greg, Gregor removed it, it stayed on my stream. Okay. okay. Uh, well, Gregor, I don't know if you want it brought in or not, but it looks like a good comment. Um, uh, and uh, Gregor, I, I hope you'll, uh, I'm going to bring it in and Gregor, you can uh, berate me later for it because it is a good comment. Esau did not value his inheritance. He sold it for a bowl of stew. Jacob desired God's blessing. Esau didn't care. God hates lethargy. Um, I actually would suggest, I think that, that that's why Esau is being used here because Esau is a representation of Israel, which sounds crazy at first since Jacob literally is Israel. But Esau had the blessing, and Esau, for the things of the world, gave up the blessing. So, so the language is, here is Israel, and they have the seed promise of Christ, the great blessing, which, which actually is the blessing that Esau gave up, uh, frankly. But, but when he trades that off, when he passes that out, he's like Israel of the flesh that rejects Christ. He gives up the blessing for worldly things. So it really, uh, it really is a good comment. Yeah. I agree with that. I, I appreciate your explanation of that, it's, especially the fact that Esau represents Israel and Jacob represents everybody else. In, What's in really the context of this? Yeah, Mike. Mike said it before in Galatians. Paul uses Ishmael to represent Israel, and again, yeah. that's really neat because he's saying, "Hey, you know, the person that you're not descended from—that really is you." And here he uses Esau, so he's used both of these. Um, sons of the flesh to represent Israel in two different places. And they're both representative of, of, first of all, one that wasn't truly the promise. And second of all, one that wasn't faithful to the promise, you know, that, that those images are, are, are profoundly important. Okay. All right. Very, very good. I appreciate that. I appreciate it, Dan. Appreciate it, Gregor, uh, for your comments there. And, um, Rhonda says, I'm having a hard time hearing John on Facebook. Let's see if I can remedy that. Give me just a second here. Uh, let's see. Sorry, just now I'm looking for something very, very specific here. There we go. Um, we'll go up a little bit, not too much, though. All right, so with that being said, all right, let me know if that is any better, and we'll stop it there and see. All right, so in the next section here we're looking at, let's go ahead and read, and let's see, we decided verses 14 down through 29. I believe that is that was our intention there. So, Tom, you read last time. Paul, would you mind reading for us? I don't know who read last time. Paul, either. Be happy to. Are you guys able to hear me all right? Yes. Yeah, we can hear you fine. Uh, in Romans 9, 14 through 29, did you say? Correct. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, 
that I may show my power in you, and that, that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For he has, for who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles? As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of the Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, Unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. Okay. Sorry about the extra movement there. All right, thank you, Paul. I appreciate you reading that. Rhonda, you can tell me if this mic sounds any better with the adjustments that I made. I'm not quite certain that it does. All right, so, Paul, as we look at this next section here, and starting back up there in verse 14. So it, Paul presents a question here. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? All right, certainly not, for he says to Moses, I'll have mercy. So is it possible that there were that Paul is anticipating that some people might accuse of God of unrighteousness? You know, going you know, think about the whole argument going with the younger rather than the older. Um, choosing not the one that should have been chosen, but the other one? Uh, yeah, I think uh, certainly, you know, if uh, the Jews would hear the message that, that Paul is preaching, that certainly they would have said, basically declared that that's unfair, or as they would say here, unrighteous. But God's not unrighteous, and he can uh, have mercy or compassion on, on whoever he would like to. Yeah, that's exactly right. Even... Uh, even as they would say, even Gentiles. <laughs> and so uh, I think that would be in keeping with what we've looked at so far. Okay. So then, then his next statement then. So then it is not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but it's of God who shows mercy. Yeah. Yeah, right. that's, I think that's a, uh, a bit of a kind of a hard statement for me. Uh, but it talks about, um, I think we look there that God's, plan, his will, his choice, does not depend upon man's will or man's actions. Uh, man isn't the one who's in control of who gets the blessing or who doesn't, uh, but he's the recipient based upon, in New Testament, uh, teaching those who are of faith. 
Okay, good point. Brad, do you have a, th or not Brad, Tom, do you have a thought? Yeah, you know, uh, as I look at this whole section here, something that just comes to my mind that it's not specifically mentioned, but bear in mind that God's not just randomly changing his mind, you know, you know, after he brings Israel along and so on. This was in God's plan all along, which is what he's emphasizing here about the seed being, you know, b before, before Abraham and so on. And when he gives the example, uh, understand God's not just saying, okay, uh, uh, you know what, I'm going to pick you, good, uh, great, tough luck to everybody else, uh, as uh, Calvinism sometimes, or true Calvinism teaches. So just keep that in mind here. Uh, even though God used the Jews, it was his plan all along to provide salvation for all of mankind. Okay, that's true, that's true. Brad, your turn. So I consider uh, what Paul is saying is that there's a natural question people should ask, and that is, is God unfair? And my thinking is, what he's saying is, the conclusion people are arriving at, or might be arriving at now, is that it becomes clear that God's relationship with Israel was never his purpose. Uh, we might look at like Ephesians 3 verse 11, where it says God's eternal purpose was the church. And so if you're an Israelite and you say, hey, wait a second, I just found out that God never intended for us to be the purpose, God actually, and this is going to be a tough one, God actually intended for us to fail. Uh, God intended for our covenant to demonstrate failings in, in, in worldly things, to, to, be, uh, to be something that didn't uh, save us or didn't purpose us, and it seems like it might be unfair. And, and he's going to make a case here, and, and he's already actually made the case that there's about five things that respond to that, five different ideas that you might respond to this question was God unfair to Israel because Israel was a vessel, and the term vessel of wrath here implies the idea that it was a vessel meant to be broken, uh, like, like an alabaster vial had to be broken in order that the oil be taken out, that Israel was something like that, that I think, that I think the point is that he's been making a case, and he'll continue to make the case here, why that doesn't at all purport God to be unrighteous. You know, Brian, that's kind of a hard saying. You know, when we stop and think about our studies of the scriptures, it's hard to, to say, and, and I've not really thought about it the way you said it, I often blame the Jews for finding fault with them. But in a manner of speaking, God set it up this way. The very law he gave them, they would not be able to keep perfectly. And, it's, and, and, and the church was not a plan B. The church was intended for before the foundations of the world. So it's kind of a hard thing to say. It, it is, but it but it shouldn't have been too much of a surprise. When Moses is giving them the law in Deuteronomy chapter 18, he predicts the next law. He actually says, there's going to be a prophet that's going to come like me. You're going to listen to him. And we're told that's Christ in the new covenant. So at the moment the law was given, the, the caveat was made, this isn't meant to last. This isn't meant to be the long-term thing. And and you're right, that, that becomes a hard. Um, I, I think, though, like I said, that, that he's going to make these points, and I'm going I'm to enumerate them out real quick, uh, mm -hmm. that he's trying to, he's already made some of these. But first of all, he says God's whole purpose was to reveal his character of mercy on all men. So that also includes the Israelite, by the way. Um, that doesn't exclude them from the mercy of God. It means, though, that their purpose couldn't be fulfilling God's ultimate character. 
God's desire to have mercy on all men. The second thing is along that line is that God's not going to say, I condemn all of Israel to the person. Lots of Israelites would accept Christ. Lots of Israelites would come to the covenant. In fact, we might even think maybe more percentage-wise of those than the nations around them. But the whole point is the Israelite as an individual is never condemned. We see that back in Romans chapter 2, verses 6, 7, and 8, where he made the point that God judges men individually by their deeds. Now, this idea that then comes along, the third point is that God's mercy then is actually for all of Israel. The whole of Israel can receive the great blessing of God by accepting Christ. They don't have to reject Christ. So God's not unrighteous to give them or to offer them this better covenant. Um, which is what some people might have thought. Um, fourth, he's already reflected that one of the things Israel got that nobody else got was God's particular patience. That God, back in his, uh, Romans 2 and verse 4, he makes the point that Israel received God's patience to a degree no other people received. So God not only was fair to Israel, he went above and beyond in his character. And then finally, the idea that, that God's wrath on Israel was well earned. Uh, as Jesus would say elsewhere, uh, and this again, again goes back to Romans chapter 2 when he's trying to say that all are under sin, Israel committed more sin than even the nations like Sodom and Gomorrah in rejecting Christ. So really, there's five answers to this, and they all, uh, they all respond to the idea that in no way is God unrighteous. All right, I appreciate that. I mean, it's a good, good way of remembering that, Mike. I, I appreciate that. Um, or Brian, boy, I've got I got names all wrong today. Should have seen me. We had kids living at home, but I have Brian, I have Mike <laughs> on the brain because I have a, I want to ask Mike something real quick before we continue on in this text. So, Mike, if I want to if I want to say if I'm Paul and I'm talking about God showing mercy on whom He will show mercy, who would be a good example to use? of God choosing to show mercy on who he chooses to show mercy, as seen in this text. First what comes to my mind is King David. Uh, for the sin that David committed with Bathsheba, David should have died. God showed mercy. Uh, another one that comes to mind is Solomon. Uh, by Solomon's uh, ignoring God and making all the idols to countless wives, well, they're not countless, but they might as well be, uh, making all those idols to those wives, uh, for those wives and their pleasure, God took the kingdom away from Solomon, but mercifully didn't do it while Solomon lived. There, there's dozens of other cases, uh, but while we're on it, let me, let me, if I may, make a distinction between grace and mercy. Mercy is seeing the need. It's having compassion. And it may even carry, as with David and with Solomon, a, a, rem, a, a realm of forgiveness. But grace is providing the need that those people could not provide for themselves. Now, when you put that all together with Israel, there's not a single case under the law of Moses that sins were blotted out and remitted they were forgiven, but remember there was a remembrance of those sins made every year. The blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. Through that then, God was merciful to their iniquities, 
That is, he forgave them, but he didn't forget them. Grace came when Christ died on the cross and obliterated those sins so that the promise, their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more, came about again through the promised seed, which is Christ. What a great blessing that is. Here we sin, and we yet are granted mercy by the granting of the understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, the mercy is we're allowed to hear it, believe it, repent of our sins, and confess Christ, but none of that's going to help us until we are baptized into Christ for the remission of our sins, rise to walk in newness of life, and from that point forward, we must be faithful unto death in order to grant again the promise of eternal life. All right, that was such a good answer. I almost hate to tell you what I really meant by the question. I okay. Asked it, I asked it <laughs> off. I was a little bit off the way I asked it. I was looking at verses 16, 17, and 18 in our text. I apologize for that. When he says, so then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. And I think that's so why I want to know how he raised up Pharaoh? Well, I was saying is, it's God's choice. If God chooses yes. to show mercy to Pharaoh or to harden Pharaoh, this is God's choice. Well, and, and in answer to that question, I believe that God did show mercy to Pharaoh nine times. Yeah, yeah. Nine times. And then he hardened There are his heart. people that get all confused about this, and they say, well, God purposely hardened Pharaoh's heart. No. God gave Pharaoh the opportunity to open his heart and accept it. The phrase means that the very thought of God made Pharaoh hard. He rejected God that much. And I think that's a good way of explaining it, Mike. I appreciate that. All right. So with this statement here of God showing mercy upon uh, who he will show mercy and, and harden who he will harden, um, Paul, then we have then the obvious question, why then does God still find fault? You know, that's kind of what Paul talks about there in verses 19. And I think that's a reasonable question to the unlearned individual, don't you? Yes. Yeah. Yes. There are people today, John, that are going to find fault with God regardless. And these Israelites to whom Paul is addressing, when he says, Thou wilt say then unto me, unto Paul, why then does God yet find fault? Uh, who, who hath resisted his will? Well, the answer is you. <laughs> That's the answer. And Israel didn't want to hear that. So at verse 20, Paul says, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Has not the potter power over the clay, and the, uh, no, the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another to dishonor? God has that decision. But God has allowed mankind this idea of choice. Now, I don't know how to explain that. I, I was asked one time, and I'm still working on that. But God allows us to choose either to obey him or reject him. There was a great many in Israel that chose to reject God. They were a vessel of honor, 
that God gave them to become a vessel of dishonor. Romans 1 again, God gave them up to a reprobate mind. Those that obeyed God became vessels of honor. That was God's desire as well. But God made them all. He made Israel. He made the Gentiles. He's made all of us. Our choice is to either serve God or die lost. Now, to me, that's not much of a choice. Okay. Good explanation. I appreciate that. Guys, any other any other um, thoughts as we go through this section? Okay, let's see. Let me look here real quick, and I'll bring it up on the screen there. So what we have now in verse 22, so what if God wanted to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the... You, know, you think about... Now, I'll tell you what comes to mind when in looking at these two verses there, if I, if I understand it right, and y'all can tell me if I'm, I'm reading this wrong. When he says there, what if God wanted to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of the glory... It's not quite the same, but I, but and it's almost reversed. But I think about the fact that God was long suffering with the Gentiles. At these, um, God talks about at these times of ignorance, He winked, or God overlooked. You know, God was very, very patient through the years with the very beings who was was preparing. You know, they were kind of storing up wrath, in, in a manner of speaking, in, in their disobedience unto God. And he long suffered or suffered long with them that the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. So, you know, and Brian, you were talking about this a while ago in regards to the, um, the, what we see within the scriptures, the, uh, the story that's laid out here. One of the common and most important threads within that story was the long suffering of God. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? No, just that uh, you know. I, I also was thinking of the parable of the workers in the vineyard, where God uh, describes Himself as one who some worked all day, others worked but an hour, and when they came for their payment, He makes the statement to say, "I." I'm allowed to do with with my good blessings whatever I want to do. Um, you know, when, when God talks about this idea of a vessel of wrath, he, again, he's not describing an unfair thing that Israel received. Israel received more than God's fairness. They just weren't the purpose. Yeah. Um, you know, their vessel was only temporary to bring, you might say, to bring the contents of that vessel to the new one. And 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 that they're accusing God of being unfair is, is just completely inappropriate. Yeah. I agree completely. And kind of the rest of this section kind of builds up that point right there, that it was God's choice to choose. And if God chose to find the Gentiles to be subject to salvation, that's God's choice. Just as he chose the Jews to be subject to salvation as well. That's his choice. All right, let's see. Let's go ahead and jump ahead then to our chat room question. And then we'll see, did we have any replies to there? We did. We uh, we had two of them, both of them in Facebook, one from Gregor, uh, one from Dan. Dan right. uh, gave us a response first, if you're able to pull that the, up. Uh, send the question over real quick. How, okay. is a, how is a remnant of Israel saved? 
Yeah, from verse 27, he talks about the remnant uh, will be saved. Dan says, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, both Jews and Gentiles will be saved in the same way by the same gospel. Great answer there, uh, because that really speaks to the central theme <clears throat> of the salvation of Israel. The salvation of Israel is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, Gregor goes on to explain the meaning or the idea of a remnant of Israel. And he says that from the beginning, it was always a part. Only some survived to 40 years in the wilderness. A small remnant survived the Assyrian and Persian captivity, preserving the faithful all the way through Christ. Few people who claim to be Christians follow God's plan. So there has only been a remnant saved through history and the future. And he points us over to Matthew chapter 7, verse 14, where Jesus describes the day of the day of judgment being one where uh, many people that thought they were saved or not. And that's, a, a, again, a great use of that term remnant, the idea that just a small portion is what is is what is ultimately faithful. You know, I, I'll be honest with you, Gregor, I hadn't really thought about that, but that's an outstanding point. Um, especially when the statement made by Jesus there now is talking about only a remnant of humanity will be saved. Yeah. You know, Gregor could have added like with Noah and the eight, you know, Peter makes a point to say, you know, in first Peter chapter three, you know, the only, only eight were saved in the days of Noah, you know, and then he says, Hey, that's like us, that there's this constant admonition that these patterns are meant to be understood as just a small part of the whole is what ultimately is saved. Yeah. And so that's a, that's a really good point. Very, very good point. Yeah. I appreciate that. All right, well, let's go ahead and read the last section here. And um, Brian, if you would, read verses 30 through the end of the chapter here, and we'll jump to this real quick and a few discussions, and then we'll be done for the day. All right. Uh, Romans chapter 9, verses 30 through 33. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. That's it. Okay. All righty. Uh, let's look at the last, just a couple of thoughts here in this particular passage. There we go. Um, I guess there's not much to say on it. It is pretty straightforward in the text there. Um, but, but there is an interesting question posed, as Brian read for us. All right, so what is the conclusion? What shall we say then? He makes the point that the Gentiles, they, and, and this goes back during the time of Israel, during the time of God's covenant with Israel, go back even to Abraham, but let's start at the Mount Sinai. From that point forward to the time of Christ, the Gentiles were not pursuing righteousness. But guess what? They found it. Righteousness of faith. Israel, on the other hand, they spent that time period not pursuing righteousness of faith, but they pursued the law of righteousness. And as a result, they, I'm sorry, pursuing the law of righteousness, yeah, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Um... Think about Paul for just a minute, and, and Brian, you can tell me if you think Paul might be a good example of this. And, and I only say this during the time from the point of Christ's death on the cross to the time of Paul's conversion. 
During that time period, Paul sought the law of righteousness, but not by faith. Yeah, that'd be a that'd be a great uh, a great way of describing it. Yeah, you know, up until the point they were one and the same, but for that short period of time, because he was slow in coming to the truth, you know, he was not. And and so, had all of Israel pursued God and faith in God, well, there never would have been found a need for a better covenant, yeah. but they didn't. Any any other thoughts on that? That's well, the only other thing I might add is that is that the concept of a law of righteousness uh, by faith versus a law of righteousness by works. Um, the, the concept, again, had a flaw to it, and that was that while faith was part of the law of Moses, it wasn't all of the law of Moses. There were, there were actually things you did in the law of Moses that weren't by faith. Circumcision. Uh, you had no part in that. I mean, somebody else did that to you and for you, and you, there was no faith, no knowledge, no uh, will of, of that idea. Uh, the sacrificial system. Priests were in the temple doing that for you. It wasn't you doing that. It was the priest doing that. So, so when it points to the idea of the of the new covenant being a totality of faith, every single work of the new covenant is a work of faith, and and so there is that distinction to a degree. But I think you kind of hit at it that you could still be pursuing God through faith if you were part of the old law until the coming of Christ, and with Christ's coming the ultimate purpose of faith was revealed, the, the ultimate idea of faith. And anybody who truly pursued the law by faith would, would follow Christ out of it into his new covenant. That's a good way of putting that. Good way of putting that. Yeah. Um, I did real quick, Mike. I forgot to bring in the chat room question for this quick section. What other ways is Jesus described as a stone? So file that away. What other ways is Jesus described as a stone? All right, go ahead, Brother Mike. I was just uh, thinking the Hebrew writer touches on that quite a bit and warns us on this side of Calvary that uh, these all died in the wilderness because of unbelief and therefore we're not to have an evil heart of unbelief. Yeah. We walk by faith, not by sight. And the example is found there in the Old Testament and, and, and what happened to Israel and the remnant. That's right. That's exactly right. That's a good point. All right, so before we go to the chat room question, because we just threw it up there, and I apologize for that. Any other thoughts on this chapter? Anything you'd like to bring out, uh, Mike, while we have you up on the screen there? Any final thoughts, anything you want to say? No, uh, not at all. I appreciate the study very much. It's, it's just interesting that the same things that happened to Israel are seemingly happening to people all over the world, they need to believe God. Yeah. I mean, believe that God is, but believe God. That's right. That's right. Um, let's see. Tom, let's jump over to you. Do you have any final thoughts on this section or the whole of the chapter? No. Uh, 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 I appreciate the study. I mean, there's, there's a lot of details that could be addressed and so on, you know, a lot of detailed different things, but I mean, we've kind of covered the, the summary of it. Uh, no matter what you do, it has to be by faith. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Paul, any thoughts? I'm just impressed with this chapter and the way in which uh, this chapter and the last chapter, they talk about promises to Abraham and how the true children of Abraham are those today who walk according to the faith of Christ Jesus. Okay. I appreciate that very much, very much. 
All right, so Mr. Brian, has did we give them enough time to respond to the question? We did. Uh, Gregor gave us uh, actually a, a few good answers here and, and uh, in YouTube, our YouTube chat. So our question was, what other ways is Jesus described as a stone? I thought maybe that'd be too broad, but Gregor picked up quite a few here. So first of all, Gregor reminds us that he is the rejected cornerstone. He becomes the cornerstone of the new covenant. So that was one of them. Um, he then takes us over to Matthew 16, where Peter made the confession, and Jesus says, on this rock I build my church. The, the identity of Christ is called a rock, uh, the, again, like a foundation stone, but here a little different, the foundational stone being the identity of Jesus. Um, he goes on to say, remind us, and, and I don't know if he meant Hebrews or 1 Corinthians 10, when Paul says that the rock, uh, that rock was Christ, you know, in the wilderness that provides the living water. Certainly it's referred to many different places like that, as Jesus did in John 4 as well. So just a really uh, great series of statements about Jesus being the rock. Um, I think I mentioned, I missed one. Uh, oh, the truth rock of Christ's heritage. Yeah. So there, so, so there's also the idea of, of all the times where David would talk about the rock that was, you know, his hope and things like that too. So, so each of those are, are a great point. Uh, uh, kind of helps uh, a lot of preachers out. If we want to do a sermon on how Jesus is the rock, we've got a lot of different things to pull out of that message. Okay. Um, and, and I do want to say this. I, that's a very good point, Brian. And Gregor, appreciate the comments. This passage is talking about Jesus. Just We didn't say that, but I think we probably need to say it just for clarity's sake and for recording's sake. And other passages support this. The the stone that they stumbled over, God chose to make the chief cornerstone of the building. And he says, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him, that is Jesus, shall not be put to shame. And so that's why the Gentiles were saved, and the Jews could likewise be saved if they weren't the ones stumbling over it. So there you have it. Romans chapter 9. Uh, Brian, you, you throw into the comment there for ourselves. Why don't you go ahead and mention that real quick? Oh, I I, uh, I was just throwing out there when you said that. I was thinking of 1 Corinthians one twenty three. Paul said, we preach Christ cru crucified. And then he elaborates to the Jews, that's a stumbling block. Yeah. So if we questioned, as you said, if we question this, the stumbling stone, the rock of offense, is Christ crucified or is Christ himself. That's right. Verse 33. Alrighty. Well, I appreciate it, guys. Appreciate you joining us this morning for this study. Thank you for being here today with us. If you have any questions or comments about anything you've heard, be sure to send them to questions at truthfactorlive. Questions at truthfactorlive.com. <laughs> Don't forget the dot com there. And we'd love to hear from you. Lord willing, if everything goes according to plan, next Wednesday we'll continue our study through Romans. We will be in chapter 10, and I think, what, is that Mike's turn or Brian's turn? Mike's turn, Romans chapter 10. So we'll look forward to hearing from him. Anyway, that is next Tuesday or Wednesday at 11 o'clock a.m. Central Time. And that is noon in the Eastern Time Zone. 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Mountain Time. And that's right here at live.truthfactor.com. Have a wonderful week.